My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. and over in headlines. We see it in the newspapers. We see it on social media. And it's really hard. We saw it in stats. And behind every stat, I want to say, is a person. It's someone's mother. It's someone's sister. In Vancouver, with a 717% increase in anti-Asian violence, I mean, people are afraid. That's the voice of Serena Ma, today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Ma is a media relations consultant and a former television journalist who lives in Edmonton, Alberta. In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, she got a call from former Alberta MLA Teresa Wu Pa, based in Calgary, about the rapid upsurge in incidents of anti-Asian racism happening at the time. Ma is, of course, no stranger to racism as a first-generation Asian-Canadian and child of immigrants. As well, she grew up on a First Nation in Alberta, which meant being in sustained relation with a community with a very different experience of colonialism and racism. On that call, Wu Pa talked about what she was hearing from Asian-Canadian communities in Alberta and beyond. People being spat at, yelled at, called names, afraid to go to the grocery store. All of this was clearly related to the ways in which popular discourse, deliberately circulated misinformation on social media, and prominent political leaders were blaming China and Chinese people for the pandemic. Notwithstanding this acute increase, anti-Asian racism has a long history in Canada. Along with the perennial, everyday struggles that don't get recorded in history books, there were high-profile events like the head tax on Chinese migrants after 1885, the anti-Asian riots in Vancouver in 1907, a near-total ban on Chinese immigration from 1923 to 1947, and the internment of Japanese and Japanese-Canadian people during the Second World War. In the context of COVID, a study released in June 2021 reported that 58% of Asian Canadians had experienced at least one instance of anti-Asian racism in the preceding year, and more than a quarter faced such situations often or all the time. There was a sharp rise in the narrow category of anti-Asian incidents that qualify as hate crimes. Vancouver, for instance, experienced a shocking 717% increase. A report released by the Chinese-Canadian National Council a year into the pandemic identified 1,150 acute incidents over that year. 10% involved being coughed or spat on, 11% involved some other kind of physical assault or unwanted contact, and almost three-quarters included verbal harassment. And then, in March 2021, a gunman killed eight people at three Atlanta-area massage parlors, including six Asian women a tragic and terrifying event that Asian-Canadian advocacy groups linked to the broader upsurge in anti-Asian racism, and in particular to histories of sexualized targeting of Asian women, along with ongoing systemic injustices faced by migrant sex workers. Within 10 days of that original phone call back in the spring of 2020, individuals and organizations from cities across the country had come together to found Act to End Racism, a coalition of concerned citizens and community groups of Asian descent aiming to build broad unity to tackle racism in the wake of the pandemic. 
Ultimately, with just a small amount of government funding along the way, the group's been active in providing community supports, doing research, engaging in education, and developing policy recommendations. This includes setting up a national hotline for reporting instances of anti-Asian racism. This is a way for those who may not wish to go to the police to ensure that their experiences are recorded, and also a way to link survivors to mental health supports. As well, they're using the calls as a way to build a more complete picture of the kinds of things that Asian Canadians are facing. Notably, most incidents occur in public spaces, and they disproportionately impact Asian women. Their educational initiatives include using videos, comics, reports, and social media to both educate the broader public and, in different ways, Asian-Canadian communities about anti-Asian racism and how to respond to it. After the Atlanta shootings, Ma was involved in organizing multi-city anti-hate rallies with groups and organizations from a range of other racialized communities. The coalition has engaged in community consultations to develop policy proposals related to anti-racism that they hope to release soon. More recently, they've turned their attention to supporting efforts to preserve the many Chinatowns in cities across the country whose distinct character is threatened by redevelopment. Ma talks with me about anti-Asian racism, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the Act to End Racism Coalition. Hi, my name is Serena Ma. I am a public relations media consultant. About five years ago, I reinvented myself after working for two decades for two national networks as a television journalist. I worked at CBC and then CTV News. I was an anchor, a political journalist, a medical journalist, and I just got tired of missing bedtimes and dinner with my young son at the time and decided to venture out. And the plan was to get a plan. At that time, there was a shifting landscape in local news and people started calling me. They started asking me, hey, can you write a press release? Hey, can you do a video? Can you do this or that? Write a speech. And very quickly, I became an entrepreneur and I'm happy to report that I'm still storytelling and doing what I love as a public relations consultant. I'm a first-generation Asian-Canadian. My grandfather helped build the railroad here in Canada. My parents came to Canada in an arranged marriage. I grew up on a First Nation in northern Alberta, and I've dealt with racism my whole life. So I know what it's like not to belong. I know what it's like to be singled out. I have a biracial son who deals with racism a lot. And I think a lot of people in Canada think that it doesn't exist, that systemic racism doesn't exist, and that we are far better off than the U.S., for instance. And I would agree that maybe we are, but I think we're just more polite about it. But as certain groups, such as the Indigenous population, they would disagree. I've seen firsthand, living on a First Nation, how difficult it is for our brothers and sisters in the Indigenous population. So. Racism is very real, and it's very harmful, and it's hurtful for your mental health. So I think that it became inevitable that I'd be working in this space. I work very closely with human rights and anti-oppression in my work, and so I'm passionate about advancing human rights and making our civil society more equitable. And as the pandemic hit, I got a phone call from Teresa Wu Pa in Calgary, who is a former Alberta MLA and also the founder of Act and Racism. And she said, you know, things are really getting really bad for Asian Canadians because of COVID-19. And we need to do something. We need to support Asian Canadians who are bearing the brunt of anti-Asian racism because of COVID. She was getting calls from people who were getting spat at at neighborhood grocery stores. 
So in 10 short days, we mobilized and created this national coalition. And what it is, is a network that supports and gives educational resources. It's a hotline where people can call in, get support to mental health professionals and an educational network as well. So it sounds like you had a kind of unique combination of experiences growing up as a Chinese Canadian person and a child of immigrants, but on a First Nation. How has that given you a distinct perspective in understanding racism in Canada? Oh my goodness, I would say it's quite unique because I see it from, I would say, maybe three different lens. For me, I kind of feel like I've been searching for belonging my whole life. I didn't quite belong. Interestingly enough, now as an adult and, you know, the mother of a young son, and I kind of feel like I've come full circle and working in anti-racism and working with so many different groups in this space. And I want to talk about this event that happened in April when the Atlanta shootings happened. It was so horrible. And we created this event in I think it was three days in three different Canadian cities in Winnipeg and Calgary and Edmonton. And so many different groups came together. It was the Indigenous group, us and the Asian community and a Muslim group. We all came together and organized an anti-hate rally. And we were all marching in the middle of COVID. We wanted a space where we could grieve and talk about our commonality and to just talk about how we could work together. And yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Just a moment where I see that we're all working together, despite our differences and our diversity, we need to work together in that intersectionality. We're stronger together. Talk more about the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. What has the upsurge in anti-Asian racism looked like? How has it been experienced? What caused it? I mean, that upsurge is, you know, misinformation. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, what was the origin and at the very beginning, and even still now, I think there's a lot of misinformation about, you know, where it came from. I mean, let's talk about the former president as well and calling it the Wuhan virus in China virus, even the way he says the word China. That kind of misinformation is inappropriate and it feeds into this anti-Asian narrative and it continues to happen over and over. And whenever you hear that, it creates this us versus them narrative and it continues to happen. We see it over and over in headlines. We see it in the newspapers. We see it on social media and it's really hard. We saw it in stats and behind every stat, I want to say, is a person. It's someone's mother. It's someone's sister. In Vancouver, with a 717% increase in anti-Asian violence, I mean, people are afraid. In Calgary, there are people who are escorting elders to get their groceries. My friends in New York are doing the same thing. My son was at a skateboard park in Collingwood here in Edmonton, and he got spat on. He was called a chink, and he came home and he said, Mom, what is that word? For me, that was so harmful, and it hurt my heart because my son hadn't heard that word. And now he hears it all the time. So, yeah, people are scared. And what does that mean? What does that look like? It means that people feel less than. It means that people don't feel like they belong. It means that it's an us versus them. And it's horrible in 2021 that we are having this conversation. 
And I'm talking about it from an anti-Asian lens, and we can talk from an Indigenous lens as well in regards to unmarked graves and the horrible discoveries. And with my Muslim brothers and sisters who have been, you know, punched and their hijabs ripped off. And I mean, it goes on and on. So such polarized communities that we're sitting in. I know that people are stressed because of COVID. I know that people are worried about our economy and making ends meet. I feel it too. I guess what I implore people who are listening is in this moment of stress that we look and we educate ourselves and that we try to look for solutions and not become more angry and be kind. I know that sounds silly, but let's not feed into this crazy narrative that, you know, it's an us versus them. Let's find solutions and let's move ahead and try to be more collaborative. And of course, though there has been this upsurge in the last couple of years, it emerges from a really long history of anti-Asian racism in Canada. Can you connect those more recent events to that longer history? Yeah, that longer history that nobody talks about, and that longer history that just gets erased. My grandfather was one of those laborers that was sent in to do the dirty job that nobody else would do because it was cheap labor and it was dangerous. They brought Chinese laborers over to do that dangerous job because nobody else wanted to do it. And lots of people lost their lives. And when that railroad was finally completed, they scooted Chinese laborers out of the picture because they weren't good enough. And there was an exclusion law that was passed to separate Asian laborers from their families. Like, that's a racist policy. There was an apology that was forced upon the government, but we don't hear about it. It's like it didn't exist and we don't talk about it. And so I think sometimes it's as if it didn't happen and we don't hear about it taught in our schools as much as we should. It's as if it's a black mark on our history that's just kind of whispered or even, oh, well, it happened and we barely talk about it. Let's talk about the Japanese and the internment camps that we don't talk about. So there are a lot of atrocities and we need to talk about the harsh realities that we do have a racist history. Our Indigenous brothers and sisters in the residential schools, I mean, it's horrible. Children who were ripped from their families. This is a reality and I don't think that we talk about it enough. And so there is an incredible historical injustice in Canada and we still don't talk about it enough and it's glossed over. And yes, we're at the beginning of talking about it for sure. And I'm grateful for that. I don't think we actually talk about it enough. What were the practicalities involved in that 10-day process you mentioned of founding the coalition? (laughs) The practicality, Scott? (laughs) It was a bit crazy, I'm going to tell you. Teresa Wupa, wow. I hope you get to meet her someday. She is a powerhouse. And when she gets an idea in her brain, wow. So she mobilized and she has this incredible network. So we got on a line, really. The great thing about COVID is the power of Zoom and the technology and how we were able to bring people together. And that's been a silver lining of all this. So we have tentacles across Canada. So in Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, and all these amazing groups got on the line. And it's like, how do I help? So we started to talk to people about who wanted to do what and what was needed. And everybody rolled up their sleeves and got to work. We said, well, what do we need? Well, we need to get education materials out. And it's really interesting in this demographic as well. We're not talking about, you know, entirely like a social media campaign because some of the elderly in the Asian community, they're not on social media. And there are linguistic issues as well. Everything had to be done in different languages. And like, I got to tell you, Scott, it comes with a lot of communication challenges. 
it's not English and French and that's it. We're talking Tagalog, we're talking traditional and simplified Chinese, we're talking Japanese. So everything we did was done in so many languages. And I got to tell you, as a communication professional, wow. And the commitment from this network to make sure that everybody was included is unbelievable. So as a volunteer organization, that capacity issue was so challenging. And the fact that they do it with such limited funds is unbelievable. They do have commitments from different levels of the government where they get funding and lots of people are volunteering their time and they do it and they do it really well. It's pretty amazing. What did the coalition come up with in terms of ways to take action? They came up with a reporting line, so a national line where people could call in if they saw a racist incident or they experienced a racist incident. A lot of people in Asian communities, they don't feel comfortable going to police. There is a number of reasons for that. It could be a cultural issue. Maybe it's linguistic. They aren't able to communicate. Or it could be an uncomfortable relationship with authorities. They don't trust a relationship with police. So an anonymous reporting line is something they would feel comfortable. So they would call this reporting line. It's a text or they can do it online and they can do it in their first language. And in that reporting line, they can also be linked to a mental health professional. And that is really important that they can get the help that they need. When you're exposed to racism, it is very difficult. It is very harmful and it has some long lasting effects specifically if it's happening over and over and over. I think specifically to my son, for instance, it's been really hard for him. And it's hard to explain why someone just singles you out just because of the way you look or the color of your skin. And especially as a 13-year-old, I know that I had difficulties as a young child too. And sometimes in Asian communities, we don't talk about it as well. So that's been another piece that's been really interesting. There's that shame piece and also that humility piece as well. There's so many layers to racism. It's complicated is what I'm trying to say. So there's that call to action for the reporting line. They're trying to gather all this data nationally in hopes of trying to create a call to action. And they've also created these community discussions where they had community consultations. And they've created these policy discussions as well, trying to do recommendations with education, with policing, with human rights and tribunals. And they've created these policy documents giving recommendations in those spaces as well. So they're doing a ton of work. And like I said, they're doing it with volunteers, with limited funding. What can you say at this point about the kinds of things that the coalition has been hearing through the reporting line? So what I can tell you, like a quick snapshot about what they're seeing in the reporting line, I don't have the exact numbers, but what they're seeing is most of the reports that they're receiving in the reporting line, they are from women and they happen in public spaces. So like parks and grocery stores. And we're seeing that from all across the country. And so I think that's where we're seeing, in fact, I see it in all the spaces that I work in and not specifically just to the Asian community. We see it in the Muslim group that I'm working with in another space as well. This racism piece where people are being targeted, it is always women and it's always in public spaces. I don't know what that says. I think people are preying on people who I think perceive them as vulnerable. 
in some of the community, especially in Calgary, we're offering support for people who are trying to get their groceries. And so some of the elderly population, people are accompanying them to get their groceries. So yeah, it's awful. It really is awful to think that people just can't go and get their groceries because they're worried that they're going to be accosted because of the way they look. And what can you tell me about the community consultation piece that you mentioned? The consultations happened last summer. So there was a series of consultations in different spaces. So education, as I mentioned, policing, human rights and tribunals. We held a Zoom and invited people to come. They're releasing some policy papers on that, and they're actually going to be releasing them shortly with some recommendations to government specifically in education, how can we tell policymakers and teachers, for instance, about how to make education more inclusive? Here in Alberta, for instance, they're talking about how to overhaul a draft curriculum. And there's a major discussion about whether that's inclusive, truly inclusive or not. About policing, we know that certain groups feel over-policed and over-represented in our criminal justice system. And why is that? And so taking a more fulsome look about that and also about funding is the type of funding that police organizations get. Is it going to the right places? Are they showing up at the right time in the right space? And are people getting the kind of help they need? Or are people better served if mental health professionals show up at a call versus, you know, a police person with a gun? And should they be policing every call, for instance? And that's a very controversial topic. Some people like to call it defunding. And I have to applaud Act to End Racism for tackling these like incredibly difficult and complicated and layered discussions and trying to unpack them and put them into a policy recommendation that they're going to present to people. They also held a fireside chat with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They just did a call to action pre-federal election asking all the federal parties, like, how do you feel about Chinatown? Will you support our initiative to rebuild Chinatown? Because these amazing spaces are disappearing globally and across Canada. At that time, only one federal party actually responded. And so they're pushing for Asian issues to be on the agenda, saying that they're getting forgotten. They don't even hit the mark. They want to be part of the agenda and they matter. They want to be part of the conversation. Please invite us to the table. What does the coalition's education work involve? The education is twofold, talking about anti-Asian racism to everybody else, but within the community as well, about what to do, what to do if you encounter racism. I'll just speak about my mom, for instance. My mom would not know what to do. My mom would not know what to do if someone were to say something to her that was offensive. She would just put her head down and take it. And she wouldn't know how to protect herself if it became violent. So I would be worried about her safety. And my mom just recently moved from the First Nation to Edmonton here. So I would need to teach her what to do and how to ask for help. And my mom just got a cell phone and my mom speaks limited English. So that education piece is something we've had to talk about. So I've had to teach her how to use an iPhone and I have to show her how to go get someone to get help and what that looks like. 
And that education piece to everybody else would be like about this reporting line. And we talked about that media piece as well. I'm a media consultant. I said that at the beginning of this interview. So we did a public relations campaign a bit about anti-Asian racism as well. And we did a big launch with Act 10 Racism when it was created. So that was part of the education piece. So it's twofold, external and internal. But that internal piece is really big as well. We had just finished a national campaign on videos and with education, which I urge your listeners to look at amazing videos that we produced, which will help with education and that historical piece, some spoken poetry, like, wow, like amazing. We commissioned some videographers across Canada and so impressed and talked about that historical piece that doesn't get spoken about in Canada. You've described an approach to addressing anti-Asian racism that also engages with other experiences of racism, and that is intersectional. What are the strengths of having that kind of approach, and what are the challenges? To be honest, I don't think there's any difficulty with it, because I do believe stronger together. I see nothing but strength in that approach, because in that experience with that anti-hate rally that was created in three days, when I put a call out when that Atlanta horrible tragedy happened, there was nothing but love. And everybody said, how can I help? And you know how that came about was my son, we were driving. Well, let me back up. I mean, this is a very stoic community sometimes with Asian communities. We hold our emotions really close to our chest. And Teresa said she was on a call. And when Atlanta happened, they were all so somber. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, this happened. And it was just so awful. And we wanted to speak out. We wanted to hold space. And we wanted to grieve. And it was just so emotional, like at that time. So many cases of people getting like, I think at that time, a woman that's just standing at a bus stop got punched in the face and like over and over the woman in Brooklyn had acid poured on her and it was just like, oh, and then these women were gunned down and it was just, and then my son, I was driving home and he said, mom, did this happen? And I said, yes. And he said, are we safe, mom? And I said, we're safe, buddy. And then the follow-up question, he said, are you safe? And I was like, wow, you know, like that really hit home. And then I followed up with Teresa and then I just put this call out and I said, hey guys, do you think you would be open to maybe doing a march? We're in the middle of COVID, like, is this realistic? And then everybody just flooded and we had the Zoom call in like Lloyd Cardinal, who's a community organizer in the Indigenous community, he said, I'm going to bring my drum that I created with a bison hide with my team and I'm, I'm going to play for you, he said, let me play for you. And yeah, it was beautiful. So I think working with other groups in an intersectional way, there's nothing that can be challenging about that because we're stronger together. If I've learned anything through COVID, we need to work together. Because when I look around, there's nothing but divisiveness. And the only way out of this is if we work together. And I see strength. And when I look around and I see love and collaboration, my heart is full. This is the way out of this. Because when we work together, we realize that we are so much stronger. So I think this is the way out. I know this is the way out because we have more in common than we don't. You have been listening to my interview with Serena Ma of the Act to End Racism Coalition. 
To learn more about the organization, go to actnumeral2endracism.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>